Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Last week, I got to be with uh, Pastor Ronnie Pittman and his church, Miss Kathy and his, their church in Asheville, North Carolina. Wonderful church, an anointed church, tremendous praise and worship. They got to running and dancing, which got me excited. I was fighting sickness, and wave of wave after the anointing kept coming and rolling out on me, and I was honestly thinking about taking a lap myself, but I thought, do I need to do that with this respiratory thing I was fighting then, and, and then will I be out of breath to preach, and I don't know, should I, should I not? And then they was dancing, and then Pastor Ronnie got to rapping. Somebody here told me they had seen him do that on the stream, and apparently it happens to him every once in a while. So Pastor Ronnie, to be a 70-plus Vietnam vet, moon, former, former moonshiner, <laughs> the anointing of prophecy comes on him, and it always rhymes, apparently. And because the music's still playing, it comes out as rap. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it's funny. It's just as funny as you imagine it to be. And the, the anointing kept coming in waves, and I kept thinking, Lord... All right, if, if he doesn't land this, I don't know how to land this because my message doesn't line up with any of this. And uh, he kept saying, I'm not going to do it. And the Holy Ghost was moving and people were running and dancing. And he said, I'm not rapping. And I thought, oh, that's what he means. He's not going to do it. He's not rap. I heard about this. And then he did anyway. He got about, I don't know, six, seven, eight lines out. He said, that's right. I'm done. We're shutting it down. We got a guest minister. I thought, well, don't give it to me. I don't know what to do with this. But he was able to land the thing as just this magnificent general, a man who'd spent much time in the spirit, and hand it to me as a blank slate. And my message went a totally different direction, but it's what the Lord gave me to minister on. And so I want to touch on part of it today. I, when I was there, I taught on uh, Jesus' parable in Luke 13 about the fig tree in the vineyard. But more leading up to that's what I want to touch on. We're not going to touch much on botany today. But what I want to talk about is what the gospel really is. We're living in a time now where we're having to delineate between Christianity and biblical Christianity because Christianity is being hijacked. We're living in a time now where there's the gospel and then there's other gospels. And because there's so many parallel words and words are very critical in what you use, we use words to delineate who we are and what we stand for. Now, the world likes to come in and co-opt the church's language, and then some morons in pulpits like to go and borrow the cool words from the world to try to sound relevant, and all that does is confuse the saints because they don't know what you're talking about, and is the college professor talking about the same thing the pastor is because they're using the same words. So we have to fight to defend words as well. It's why we're going to always use biblical terms like being born again or being saved or being filled with the Holy Ghost. We don't use the word community. We use the word church. We're not a faith community. That's a secular humanistic Marxist term. We use the term the fellowship of the believers. We've come into Mount Zion into an innumerable company of believers. We use biblical terms because I don't want to sound like a woke Marxist progressive who's confused, because I'm not confused about any of this. I still know how to pee. I stand up to pee. I don't identify as a squatter. Amen. <laughs> so we're living in a day where there's a different gospel now. And even though it uses some scriptures, 
even though it may call itself the gospel and even though it might meet in a so-called church and have a so-called worship team and have a so-called preacher, if you can judge it by the word, you can figure out if it's the gospel or not. So one of the things I did in Asheville is I laid out what the gospel is from the gospels. Doesn't that sound like an ideal place to start? We should probably judge the scriptures by the scriptures and let the Bible define its own terms rather than letting talking heads in the television set tell us what our words mean. Because who are they to tell us what to believe? I get annoyed when the media types quote scripture to us because I think, okay, Bob, if you want to have a Bible study, let's talk about some other scriptures. But don't quote my Bible to me when you don't know my God. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I want to talk about what the real gospel is this morning. And something I'm going to say over and over again is going to be this. Without repentance, there is no hope. Without repentance, there is no hope. I've made this statement in the last couple of weeks here at our church that the American church seems to have found itself as peddlers of hope. We're hope peddlers. Hope, 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 hope. We've called it hopium. A friend out in Pastor Kirchunas in Seattle calls it hopium. I call, I've called it methahope or hopodome for a while. It's the world is hurting. And so our job is to give them hope. Wrong. Our job is to give them Jesus. And Jesus gives them no hope without repentance. And so what we have found out when you watch popular preachers in the big churches, not every big church, but a lot of them, what they call the gospel is really false hope because it's all about the good side of the gospel without the judgment, wrath, and the other promises of the gospel. Therefore, they're not preaching the fullness of the gospel. Paul said, I have not forsaken to preach the fullness of God's counsel to you. We have to give the fullness of God's word. And so people come to our church, and I've got preacher friends that say, you know, our society's hurting, our community's hurting, we need to give them hope. No, we don't need to give them hope. It's not mine to give them. My job is to give them Jesus Christ and him crucified. My job is to give them the gospel, and the gospel does not promise hope apart from repentance. And so what, fam what folks are looking for, hurting families, they come in, they want an encouragement message is what they want. And preachers have learned if I encourage people every sermon and don't confront at all, I can grow a big church, and that soothes my ego and my internal daddy issues. Because preachers have daddy issues too. Trust me, I'm a preacher, and I had a daddy. So I know what dads are, and I know what daddy issues are, and I know what ego is and insecurity is. So what we're dealing with is a whole generation now of preachers who have forgotten who they answer to, which is God Almighty. And now what they are doing is thinking God's endorsement is in the numbers, but I can pad the numbers if I dial back the real gospel and give methahope, hope a dome. Hope is here. Not if there isn't any repentance, there isn't. And so folks come to our churches and they're hurting. But why are they hurting? Sin. Why is their marriage broken? Sin. Why are their kids rebellious? Sin. Why are they suicidal or depressed or discouraged or cutting themselves? Because sin is somewhere. And what we've learned to do is just to lie to people. Anytime you give somebody half the story, you're a liar. When you give somebody half truth, you're a liar. So truth is, 
God does love you. God does have a plan for you. God wants to be good to you. God wants to deliver you. That's all truth. The full truth is, but you must repent. You must confess your sin. You must turn from your wicked ways. You must reject sinfulness, carnality, demonism, fornication, idolatry, adultery. If you will turn from this, now we can offer you the hope. Now, on a side venture that we don't have time to cover, the biblical concept of hope has absolutely nothing in common with American understanding of hope. You and I have Christ in us, the hope of glory. The Greek word for hope doesn't mean uncertain good like you and I understand it to be. I hope we win the playoffs. I hope I get chosen for the team. I hope my daughter gets straight A's. I hope my wife picks up that food I wanted from the restaurant. That's uncertain good. That has nothing at all in common with the Bible's use of the word hope. So now what we have is a, an issue of words. We have an issue of understanding. Words are important. That's why we don't want to sound secular. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Most of the time, when the New Testament speaks of hope, it's talking about the resurrection from the dead. That is the capital H hope. Titus 2 talks about it. The hope of Israel. Paul said, for the hope of Israel am I in these chains. What hope was he talking about? The resurrection of the dead. Hope is used using its two cognates about 80 times in the New Testament, 50 and 30, depending on how you want to break the words down. Most of the time it has to do with the resurrection of the dead. Has nothing to do with having a better Sunday. Has nothing to do with coming out of your hurt. Though there is an element of God delivering you. The other definition of hope is expectation. So this again is a side venture. We're not going to stay here. So the hope of the gospel is the expectation of the gospel. If you look it up in the lexicon, hope is going to be the patient, joyful waiting of the Lord. That's what the word hope means. It has nothing to do with hope is here. Hope. We want to give you hope. Apart from repentance, there is no hope. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for your marriage. There's no hope for your future. There's no hope for your kids. There's no hope for your health. There's no hope for your money. There's no hope for your mental wealth health or stability apart from repentance and obedience to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So now it feels like most of the American church are just a bunch of liars. Most of the pulpits are filled by liars who just say, God wants to be good to you, which builds a hope. It's not a biblical hope. Well, is he or isn't he? Because all you said is he wants to be. Is he going to be good to you? I don't know. That's up to you. God does want to be good to you. God does want to deliver you. He wants to, but that doesn't mean he's going to because it's totally dependent on your repentance. Amen. So I'm beginning to wonder now, do we even know how to preach the gospel anymore in this nation? Maybe this explains why we go door to door twice a month now, knocking on doors, winning the lost, and nobody comes to church because maybe none of them are really getting born again. Because if they were really born again, there'd be this compulsion of the Holy Spirit on the inside of them to find people of like faith. But we don't see that happening. Maybe they pray in desperation. We're still trying to troubleshoot why we can win maybe on average one person to the Lord every time we go out, but we get none of them in the church that won them to the Lord. Not that we want all those folks at our church. They're not all called here, but why can't we get one? Not even one. We're still trying to troubleshoot what's going on. When I was born again as a seven-year-old at a Baptist youth camp, there was a fear and a dread that came upon me. 
Now, how many sins has a seven-year-old committed worthy of eternal damnation? I can't think of a lot, but one, which is rejection of Christ and being dead in your sins and trespasses. And yet, Link was the name of the counselor who gave the altar call. I remember thinking it was cool because that was Zelda. That's what my that's throwing up seven-year-old mind. Link, like Zelda? Link is the guy who gave the altar call at Camp Bioka. And he said, if you don't know this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you need to give your heart to the Lord right now. And I remember the Lord gave it to me as a vision as a 19-year-old because Pastor Vaughn would always preach, don't you remember when you first got saved? I'd go, ah, no, I don't remember it at all. I just remember it was Camp Bioka. So I prayed for weeks, Lord, let me remember my born-again experience. Let me remember my born-again experience. Let me remember my... I sought God for weeks because Pastor Vaughn would preach it, and I couldn't remember my born-again experience, but I remember I was seven. I remember it was at Camp Bioka right before I turned eight because I got water baptized that summer later when I turned eight. And the Lord gave it to me in a dream, a supernatural dream at the age of 19, and I leaned up against the post of the pavilion and watched my seven-year-old self give my heart to the Lord, and I had all the emotions that I was experiencing. That's how I can realize and remember all this. But even as a seven-year-old, it was a dread that came upon me that said, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I have better get him in my life. That was the conviction of my little seven-year-old heart. It was a dread. It wasn't a feel-good. There was a terror because there was a severity and there was a, a warning, a wrath to come. I knew within me, even though Link did not say, you're going to hell, even though Link didn't say there's a wrath to come, he did say, you need this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this conviction came upon this seven-year-old little blonde-headed boy. And my heart said, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I need, I better get him in my heart. And I began to cry out of a dread and a fear, knowing I needed a God. So you can't tell me you can be too young to be born again. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. Pretty good way to start the beginning of a gospel, huh? <laughs> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea. That is a big bunch of people. And they of Jerusalem. There's your city folk, your cosmopolitan types. And were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. This is the beginning of the gospel. It began with John the Baptist six or so months before Jesus Christ's ministry. And it began with him preaching at the River Jordan. And everybody went to him. It was not convenient. And yet it was enough of a move of God, they were compelled. The whole region, Judea, and in the capital city, Jerusalem, they all went to him. Now come to Luke 3, because let's pick up there. This beginning of the gospel, because we're living in a time where I don't think we know how to preach it anymore. We've forgotten how to preach the gospel. Luke chapter 3. Let us look at Luke's version of John's ministry. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels, only 16 chapters long, and so most of what he has is abbreviated. Luke 3, 
beginning in verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the, uh, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, the country about Jordan means he's on the easternmost border of Israel. He's out of town. He's in the country round about the Jordan River. He's staying close to the water baptism source, and people have to go to him. I'm not against streaming, but it has certainly made for a weak church. Pastor Ingolf from Germany was telling me, he said uh, in the 50s or so, when television began to take off, or maybe it was the 60s, folks began to be concerned and sing the praises. They were both concerned and singing the praises of television. He said there was a famous German poet or author who said, television is not the problem. He said, television will make smart people smarter and dumb people dumber. So Pastor Ingolf told me, he said, COVID has done the same thing, Pastor. COVID has made strong Christians stronger and weak Christians weaker. And to that I would add streaming. Streaming has made strong Christians stronger because they know how to use it when their kids are at home sick and they have to be at home with their kids or they're on vacation or they're out of town on business. And streaming has made weak Christians weaker because they're all about convenience. In John's day, you couldn't stream repentance. You had to go in person. So let's keep reading. He preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He's got this massive crowd. He says, repent and get in the water. We're, we're nervous about altar calls. Come down and stay dry. He'd say, repent and then get in the water in all their fancy clothes and their fancy robes and their fancy headpieces and their scarves and their turbans. Repent. And by the way, the water that's been ugly since the days of the Pharaohs. Naaman the leper didn't like the water in the days of Elisha. It's nasty. It's muddy. Everything irrigation runs into it. There's better waters in Syria. And he's not even saying, well, let's go find a better oasis than this. He's like, no, if you're really sorry, confess your sin and get in the water. And I'll get to you when I get to you. You can't build churches in America that way anymore. Not when Reverend Joe Schmo is across the street preaching hot coffee and sex with the secretary. Amen. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the ways of the Lord, make his path straight. I, I kind of feel like, I say that sarcastically, I know for a fact, I don't kind of feel like, that the job of the church is to prepare the coming of the Lord. And we're to make things very straight and very clear as we prepare his second advent, because this is his first advent. Wouldn't God we'd have more voices like John the Baptist just shooting things straight, preparing the way of the Lord, making sure everybody knows how to find God Almighty instead of hiding it behind a coffee bar and trashy worship teams. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough way shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, but it doesn't mean all flesh will get saved. All flesh will see Jesus Christ, but not all flesh is going to get in on salvation. Then said he to the multitude that came forth. Now, that's what every seeker preacher wants is a multitude. Oh, every ego-driven, insecure preacher wants a multitude. 
Okay, once you get them, what are you going to tell them? Once you draw them in, once you got that megaplex, four services Sunday morning, what are you going to give them? What does the gospel give them? Let's see what the gospel gives them. Remember, this is the beginning of the gospel. Then said he to the multitudes that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of visitors, before you leave the banks of the Jordan today, make sure you get with one of our connection team members. We want to get you a coupon for some of uh, Philistia's finest wine. We're just so glad you came here. We know it's a sacrifice of you giving an hour to your God on a Sunday morning. So we just want to say thank you for being in attendance. You've done God a favor. So what does the beginning of the gospel say to the multitude gathered at the bank of the river? Oh, generation of vipers. That's not exactly a seeker-friendly Joel Osteen warm-up message, is it? <laughs> generation of vipers. Other translations say brood of vipers, offspring of vipers. So now you insult mom, dad, seminary, denomination, grandma, grandpa. You are the offspring of wicked people. That's how the gospel begins. How about I look at you and tell you, you are the offspring of wicked people. I am the offspring of wicked people who got born again. I had grandparents who at some point got born again. Hopefully you had parents or grandparents that got born again. But make no mistake about it, at some point we're all from wicked stock. John's not really interested in hugging people or building a mega ministry. He's not interested in being on TBN, Daystar, or Dove. He's interested in making straight paths for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, when you got a multitude of people and you're in the river, they could just bum rush you and drown you, but he doesn't seem to care. He's got to obey God as every Christian who calls upon the name of Jesus must as well. You generation of vipers who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So the gospel doesn't begin with God has a plan for you. The gospel begins with, there is eternal damnation marching for you. Who warned you about it? Why are you even here? If, we're, if this is the beginning of the gospel, I don't know if the church has even begun to preach the gospel anymore. The beginning says, where you come from is wicked and where you're going is wicked. That's how you start the gospel. Where you come from is damnable trash. And where you're headed is where all damnable trash must go. The wrath of God appointed unto you as a sinner and the offspring of asps, vipers, and venomous serpents. What a way to start a ministry. And yet Jesus Christ said, this is my forerunner. And without him, I can't do my ministry. I wonder if churches would start preaching this way again if Jesus could do some more things in his church. Jesus loved this ministry. He came and submitted to it, got baptized himself, though he had nothing to repent of. Bring forth, therefore, fruits that prove you have repented. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, this doesn't seem like a very encouraging gospel continuation because he says, you're wicked and you're going to hell. 
If you're going to repent, I'll baptize you, but you better prove that you truly repented with fruit because if you don't bear fruit, I want you to know already there's an ax at the foundation of your life and it does not remove until you take your last breath. And should you die without fruit, it will hack you down and burn you in hell. That's the gospel. Not Buddy Jesus, not TBN Jesus, not Bentley Rolls Royce Jesus. The beginning of the gospels. Preparing Jesus's ministry. And what have we become in America? We want to give people hope. Oh, I know you're hurting. I know you're hurting. Oh, I know you're hurting. You hurt because you're sinful. You hurt because you don't obey God. You hurt because you mock scriptures. And anything you begin to do for God, you do for half a week, then you quit and blame him for your failure. So if you want hope, I'll give you hope. Repent and bear fruit and watch things get better. Now, we might say... There is hope to be given for the righteous Christian serving God who's being persecuted. There's a different message for that person. Oh, I think you understand that. When they're doing everything they know, man, they're in prayer. Their life is clean, but they're under attack. They're being persecuted. Their spouse has left them because they've mocked God in their heart. Don't want to have anything to do with the wife or the husband and the kids. And they're just tearing things apart. There's a different message for that person altogether. That's not the message America needs to hear. That's a message for a sliver of the body of Christ. The issue is every church in America recognizes the American church is rotten. Every preacher I know can see it. Even my seeker-friendly, lukewarm preacher friends can see it. But nobody, no church wants to judge to see where their church is contributing to the problem. Every church contributes to the degradation of the church. Our church in attitudes contributes to the degradation of the church. Jesus Christ rebuked the seven churches of the apocalypse. Only two of them did he encourage at all. They were both under persecution. Had they not been under persecution, I think he would have said, all right, now that you're out of persecution, let's talk about some other things I want to deal with you about. Were they free and opening their doors and coming as they wanted to? I think the Lord would have not encouraged them, but said, I have somewhat against you like he did the other five churches. Because out of the seven, five of them, the Lord says, I have something against you. And the Lord Jesus says that to every church in America today. I love you, but I have something against you. He says the same thing to us as his children. I love you, but I've got something against you. And six months from now, he's going to say, I love you, and I still got something against you. So what do we do? We repent and we fix it. This is the gospel to people who need the gospel. Now, I make the argument, some could say, well, you know, that was, that was a different time, and, and we're living in different days. So I would ask, were there not hurting people on the banks of the Jordan the day John waded out into the water to turn and preach at them? Were there not demonized people in John's day? Were there not people going through a divorce in John's day? Were there not people whose children had died or were maimed or wounded? Were there not people oppressed by Roman soldiers in John's day? Sure, there were. So there was hurt. We could have easily stood on the banks of the Jordan that day and said, man, there's so many hurting people today. I sure hope John gives an encouraging word. Man, I know half these people, they're hurting. I sure hope John hears from heaven and gives an encouraging word. These people are hurting. And so what does John do? Generation of vipers. He doesn't address the woman who just buried her son. He doesn't address the man whose wife just had an adulterous affair on him. He addresses the nation. 
the multitude. And if you can't get it through your thick skull, you minister to one-on-one people differently than you do a multitude, you don't understand the heart of God. And so this message, it doesn't get any better. Oh, generation of vipers is the softest thing he says the whole sermon. Because you've got to warm up to the people, you know. The axe is laid to your root. I'm in verse 9. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So he says, look, you get water baptized, that's great, but let's see where this ends up. We just watered you. If you don't bear any fruit, this baptism means nothing to you. It means nothing for you. You have to bring forth fruit, which is the gospel message in our life to this day. We got, I got born again at the age of seven. I began to grow. I backslid in my college, high school college years, returned to Christ. And if I continue to bear fruit, then the Lord is pleased. If I endure to the end, I am saved. But the promise of the gospel is, okay, you can get water baptized here in John's baptism. Claim you're sorry, but if you don't bear fruit, just know there's an axe of God right there laid at the base of your, your existence. Does this feel like America's Christianity? But you, you, you're in the same Bible I am, right? How did we get so far off base? Was it because we let Oprah adjust our message? Disney? Were we busy wishing upon a star, hoping our dreams would come true? And the people asked him, saying, why have you offended us? This is such a hard message. We're going back. We're going to find a Herodian to be our revivalist. This is a hard church. This is a hard word. Who can hear it? This is horrible. Look at what the people who claim wanted God said. What shall we do? Because it takes a little bit of work, you know, to bear fruit. What's about to follow are three commandments that are three works that prove you've turned your life around because part of fruit takes work. So there's a lot of morons out there that are so hyper-graced, they don't think they should do anything for God. Nothing should be any work. The only way you can do no work at all is to lay down naked and die of starvation. That's the only way you can do no work in your life. Everything else takes work. He answered and said unto them, He that has two coats, let him impart to him that has none. And he that has meat, let him do likewise. That is, quit being stingy, you bunch of Jews. That's where their reputation precedes them. He's addressing Jews here. Then came also publicans to be baptized. That's another group of people. Those are the Jews that have been used by the Romans to collect taxes for the Roman Empire, and they would also charge more than was necessary because they had the authority to do so. They said, what should we do? Master, what should we do? They weren't offended by being called a brood of vipers. Why do a bunch of weak-kneed, safe, space-seeking believers want a soft message? The publicans who know they're wicked, they're a bunch of perverts. He says, you're going to hell. The publicans say, Master, what should we do? I'm glad you asked. Exact no more than that which is appointed you. Just do your job with honesty. What's interesting, verse 11 is all about greediness. You got two coats, give one away. You got extra food, give it away. Verse 13, don't take more than is appointed you. That's greed. Verse 14, and the soldiers. You mean he had Romans there? Roman soldiers? Some of these could have been Jewish conscripts because that was typical. But we'll say Jewish and Italian Roman soldiers. Likewise demanded of him. 
They didn't demand he repent. They didn't demand he get out of town. They didn't demand that he say he was sorry. They didn't demand a public apology on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and TikTok. They demanded of him, what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your income. That would kind of under, undermine the uh, unions. Nothing good ever comes of unions. And as the people were in expectation, so John preaches this hard, calls them a brood of vipers, tells them they're going to hell, tells them if they don't bear any fruit, they're going to hell, tells them don't expect Abraham to come rescue you. They love the message. They're in expectation. And all men mused in their hearts, how we'll kill this man. No. They said, you think he's Christ? Is this the, the Messiah? Because apparently they knew he might preach that way. Now, if, if Jesus was expected to preach this way, what does that say for Americans' ministers today? That we perhaps are nothing at all like Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who we dare claim to represent. This man preaches this hard. Nobody dares pick up a stone. They're all under conviction. They're demanding, what do we do? How do we prove to you that we've changed? Tell us what it looks like. We want to be different. And in their hearts, they're like, this has got to be the Messiah. This has got to be the Christ. This has got to be him. Because look at the boldness with which he preaches. He's not trying to be our friend. He's trying to make us right with God. God have mercy on any limp-wristed, coward preacher who tries to be a friend to the world, adopting the world's methods for drawing people. John answered and said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Wait, so John's message is that hard and it's a water message and Jesus is coming with fire. I think we have an escalation whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. So we're still talking about you're going to hell. You're still not safe. So we got one, one horticultural allegory says, if you don't bear fruit, he's going to cut you down and burn you in hell. The next horticultural allegory, both in the gospel and the same message, says if you're chaff, he's going to figure it out. He's going to blow you away from his people, and he's going to burn you in hell. This is the beginning of the gospel, verse 18, and many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. So this seems to be the theme. Get right, stay right, or burn. Get right, stay right, or burn. Get right, stay right, or burn. Now, something I just noticed analytically this morning, going back over this passage. The gospel and the word of God is likened to two different tools, both of them used with horticulture. The gospel is like an axe that cuts down wicked people who insist on remaining fruitless. And the end result is damnation. The second tool is the winnowing fork or the fan as the King James. I preach out of the King James. The winnowing fork or the winnowing fan. 
And that is, it uh, looks like a pitchfork. And with it, you'd scoop grain up and you'd throw it up in the air and you'd let wheat and chaff separate. And he says that he'll do that to his people. He will stab this pitchfork called the gospel into folks that claim are his. And he'll toss them up in the air and the wind of the Holy Ghost will blow. And chaff always blows away. And those that are God's fall right back where they were. Because they know where they belong. They don't get offended. They don't leave. They, they aren't easily blown out of their position. So can you imagine a big pile of grain? I know we're so far removed from agriculture, we may not know what even grain looks like. Do you know sugar smacks? That is puffed wheat covered in fructose. So imagine a big pile of sugar smacks. Now for our Africans, this is cereal that is a wheat grain. Africans live very close to the land. They understand agriculture, whereas we Americans are like, uh, do you have to kill a cow to get milk from it? You have to kill a chicken to get eggs from it? Yeah, that's how dumb this new generation is. So when you harvest grain, before you can process it, you have to separate it from the bracts and the leaves and the glooms that are it tightly bind it to the, the, the wheat the stalk that was called the rachis. So once you break it up, you still have to get everything else apart. And so they would do that by, after they sifted it, they would thresh it, which means they would beat it. That would separate things. And then they would toss it up in the air and allow the lighter stuff to blow away. They usually would do it at the city threshing floor, sometimes in a windy position. Uh, but anyway, the threshing floor is what the Lord says. He will clean his floor. A whole bunch of people gathered in his floor. Always a bunch of people gathered in the house of God, his floor. And even in his floor, the local house of God, he'll take this tool called a winnowing fork, a threshing, excuse me, winnowing fork, and he'll shovel it and he'll toss it up in the air to separate that which is desirable from that which is undesirable. And when the winds of God blow, the winds of God blow people away from God. Because those that are God's go right back where they were, in that same pile, in the center of God's will, and God will collect them and gather them into his garner. And the chaff, he'll burn with unquenchable fire. No matter how you sort the gospel, it's all about bear fruit or burn. That doesn't make you want to hug your neighbor or touch him is to tell him, I bless you three times in the name of Jesus. <laughs> touch your neighbor. And that, that, no, no, we don't, I don't fool with that here. If you're born again, you're capable of bearing fruit. If you're born again and you have the seed of God's word and you're born again and you have the water of his spirit, there's no reason why you can't bear fruit. It's not a real encouraging gospel message, but in this day it drew a crowd and they demanded, not an apology like today's generation does on Instagram. They didn't demand an apology. They wanted to know what their responsibility was. What must we do to be saved? What must we do to bear fruit? How can we prove to you we're truly penitent? 
And everything dealt with the major sin of their day, which was greed, greed, greed. When you're an oppressed people, you're greedy because you're trying to figure out how to get a dime, get a dollar, salvage, scam, scavenge. That's the major sin of their day. Now come with me to, let's look at 1 John. Can you pull it up for me? New American Standard. Let's go 1 John chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 4. We'll turn to the jumbotron here. 1 John chapter 3, New American Standard. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Pause there. Our job is to practice fruit production. Our job is to practice bearing fruit. Our job is to practice obedience to God and his word. Our job is to practice humility, forgiveness, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. That's our job to practice it. What does it mean when a Christian insists on practicing sin? That's dangerous. King James says, every man who committeth sin. That doesn't really bear the fullness of the scripture because we've all committed sin. We all will commit sin. This translation, New American Standard, which is probably the best modern Greek translation, brings it out better that it's not that you commit sin, it's that you practice it and you insist on practicing it. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. We can imply or infer the practices. Uh, that's your verse 6. Do you have uh, my, my King James, I mean, my New American Standard, I think is the, 20, the 2020 edition. It says, no one who remains in him sins continually. And that's the inference in the Greek Uh, So a different uh, New American Standard Bible from the year 2000 or so says, no one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. So we need to make that distinction. Coming back to John's gospel, or the beginning of the gospel is preached by John the Baptist. Our job is to practice bearing fruit, not practice sin. Our job is to continually aim to bear fruit, not aim to practice sin. Dr. Barclay says it this way, my pastor, God knows the difference between you chasing sin and sin chasing you. And I want to tell you very clearly, you're a Christian and you chase sin, I doubt you're a Christian. Your lifestyle permits me to doubt your salvation. Because if you're truly born again, you can't live sinfully and tolerate it. You're miserable. You can't live stubborn. You can't live unrepentant. You can't live belligerent. You can't live hostile. Because if you are truly born again, something about the love of God on the inside of you, the spirit of God, the nature of Christ in you would constrain you and at the very least make you a miserable man or woman. First John says that. I think we look at these verses and we doubt it but that's only because you're not truly born again. I have been genuinely truly born again since I was seven, almost eight years old. When I was backslidden from my senior year in high school to the end of my freshman year in college, I was miserable almost every day of my life. Almost every 
day because I knew I was out of the will of God. And I was mad at the same time, and I was mad at God. I was mad at God because he seemed so far away. I'd gone from a very close walk with God to now he seemed far away. And that made me all the more miserable. And I mocked Christians, and I made fun of them. But the problem was me. It's pretty wonderful when God comes to live on the inside of you. He is the governor that kills your life when you get too stupid. You can't enjoy anything. You're just miserable, and you blame everybody but yourself for your misery. That comes back to the hope message. God has a plan for you. It involves repentance. God wants to be good to you. Repent first. God has a plan. Repent or you're never going to find it. Our marriage is a mess. I have no hope to offer you until you repent. Because without repentance, your marriage is hopeless. Well, I'm a Christian. Then act like it. Prove by your lifestyle and the fruit of your life that you're truly born again. Next verse. Verse 7. We okay back there? Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Let's just stop there. We don't practice sin. We don't get up and go look at porn again. We don't get up and go drink beer again. We don't get up and go insult our wife again. We don't get up and pick another fight with our husband again. That's practicing sin. We practice righteousness. It doesn't mean we're perfect at it. We practice it till we get it right. If we practice righteousness and we fail, we get back up and say, well, well that was messed up. Part of practicing righteousness is being quick to forgive and repent when you mess up. So even when you mess up, let's take marriages because some of your marriages are a total mess and you want me to fix it. I can't because you're hopeless because you won't repent. Part of practicing righteousness in a marriage is I try to be nice to my wife. I get till about 8.20 in the morning and then I just can't help it but be a jerk because I'm a moron. Well, what do I do now? I practice righteousness. How, what does that look like? Honey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for acting like the old moron that you were dumb enough to marry. But if you'll pray for me, and if we just help me, help me. If you'll pray for me, I can lay off these morons' clothing and become a new man in Christ. And that might get you to 845. And then you practice sin again. But then you repent. Um, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. I'm practicing sin again. I don't want to practice sin. I want to practice righteousness. Oh, God, have mercy. That in itself is practicing righteousness. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to quit practicing stupid. Practice righteousness. Do what's right when you're in the midst of doing what you know is wrong. Even in the midst of your sexual sin, say, oh, God, have mercy on me. Like Rahab the whore having sex with a thousand politicians like our politicians do, even the Republicans, you know. But her heart's saying, Lord, I don't want to be this way. Lord, I don't want to be this way. Even though her body's practicing sin, her heart is saying, God, I don't want to be this way. There's nothing feminist or freeing or liberating about being a whore. There's nothing Me Too movement about being a sex worker. Have mercy on me. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You can practice righteousness by crying out to God for mercy in your heart. And the louder your heart cries, the more your life will change. I look at folks when I pastor, and I think their life doesn't change because their heart doesn't cry. You can say the right words with your mouth. You can espouse the right doctrine with your mouth. You can think the right thoughts with your head. But 
if your life ain't changing, it's because your heart ain't crying. Because the practice of righteousness begins with your heart crying out to God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. I've failed you again. Lord, I want to do better. Lord, I want better. Lord, I want to glorify you. Lord, I, there, every time I want to do good, evil's present with me. Lord, have mercy on me. Don't give up on me, Lord, because I'm not quitting yet either. That's what it means to practice righteousness. When you practice righteousness, you are righteous just as God is righteous. Next verse. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Sounds like some of you in your marriages. Because you just can't seem to not sting your spouse. You're of the devil. Because he practiced sin from the beginning. Are you not good enough at it? You got not enough gold medals and all those fighting you do? Are you not like a fourth degree black belt and being a moron and a jerk to your wife yet? I mean, when's enough going to be enough? How about practice another martial art called sweet? <laughs> at least get your yellow stripe in Tinder. Not the dating website app. You got to clarify it for this modern generation and it's wicked gay brother grinder. Swipe left, swipe right, come down with an STD. Hoorah. How about you get a yellow stripe in gentle? How about get a, maybe an orange stripe in encouragement? How about that? That sounds like a winner. How about practice righteousness and not sin? Because when all you do is practice sin, 1 John condemns you. I don't. I just read 1 John. It says you're of the devil. When your life is set on practicing sin, I don't care if you got water baptized. I don't care if you got spirit filled once. When all you do is practice sin, you're of the devil. Pretty simple. For the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So this proves... You don't have resurrection power in you because if Jesus Christ was in you, he would destroy all those works you've been practicing. So with your mouth, you espouse Christ, but with your life, you practice demonic witchcraft. It all comes back to the beginning of the gospel. Bring forth fruit that proves there's been a change. And if people say, well, I can't see a change, don't blame them. They walk up to an orange tree. I don't see any oranges. Orange tree doesn't get mad. He says, well, bear with me. I'll get, it to you. I'll get them to you next season. Takes a whole season, you know. You can't blame people when they can't see Jesus in you. Blame yourself. Our job is to bear fruit. And the promise of that gospel message is still for us to this day. That acts is laid at our feet. The roots of our existence. I, yeah, I hear the counter arguments. Well, that's the beginning of the gospel. Well, Jesus went on to talk in other places about cutting you off and burning you. Leave them alone. Every tree that my father's not planted shall be plucked up and burned. If you don't abide in me, you're going to be plucked off and burned. Okay, well, that's Jesus. What about the epistles? Paul said, I would they that troubled you be cut off. Put them out. Have no fellowship with them. A lot of New Testament talks about cutting down and casting out. You can't escape it. Our job as believers is to bear fruit. But hear this again. Without repentance, there is no hope for you. God offers and extends zero hope without your repentance. I get no hope from God without repentance. If I'm looking for hope, it begins with me figuring out where I'm wrong and repenting. And repenting doesn't just mean I'm sorry. Repenting means I'm never going to go there again. Repentance means I turn and go a different direction. And you hold that course so that the Lord can see you truly do want to go a different direction. You and I cannot sneak things over on God. When our hearts cry out, things will change. 
If you don't like the way your life is, turn up the volume of your heart and see what you're crying out for. That's how God answers us. Amen?